This is Jessen Mason with A Mostly Green Life, chatting with Claudia Pineda-Tibbs, the Sustainability and Operations Manager at Monterey Bay Aquarium. We discuss ocean plastics, sustainable fishing practices, and how social equity can affect sustainability decisions. And are you asking the right questions when it comes to ordering seafood at restaurants or purchasing at the grocery store? Listen to learn about a comprehensive guide that can help. Oh, and disclaimer, this was another remote recording out in Monterey Bay while on our Mostly Green Life tour this past summer, so please excuse the seagulls in the background. Welcome to the Mostly Green Podcast. Today we're talking with Claudia Pineda-Tibbs, who is a Salvadoran-American scientist, birder, nature lover, ocean conservationist, and sustainability professional who has spent the last 15 years working in Monterey at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, branded as La Eco Latina. Which is a pretty cool brand, I would say. (laughs) Definitely. I love it. I miss it so much. Um, But when I came out as non-binary, I kind of put that in retirement, but still very much, um, you know, the eco Salvadorian at heart (laughs) and will always continue to be that person. Very cool. I think there's something about, I, I guess, interesting about the Spanish language as we move away from gender identities mm-hmm. is a lot of the words, they, they have gender totally. associated with them. Yeah. Um, how do you think, like, what, where do we go from here in the Spanish language? Yeah, you know, for me personally, I think that just making language a little bit more inclusive and just accessible to people who mm-hmm. don't feel fit into the, you know, traditional construct of the binary world allows for more people to be seen. I think it allows for more people to just also recognize that identities can change and they're ever evolving and the way that we as humans and as society adapt just is a really great opportunity for people to see what works for them and how they want to be identified and how they want to be seen in this world. And I think when you feel like you can be your authentic self, then you can be your best self as well. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I lived in Spain for a year. And when I came back, I was fluent. And so I tried to keep up on, I would just watch telenovas and other things to try to keep here in the language. And I remember a show where it was a movement to try to um, take the language gender neutral and at the time, this was like 10 or 15 years ago. And I'm like, God, that sounds like changing the English measurement mm. system yeah. <laughs> over to metric, which I guess is a generational thing. But, you know, probably a, a more, I would call it a more forceful push with the language than measurement. You're just like, whatever, it's a foot. It's yeah. a foot. I don't care if it's a meter. But mm-hmm. with people care about the language, you know, hopefully that, that can happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really interesting, too, is that the folks who are pushing for the more, you know, non-gendered approach to Spanish language are just folks who haven't seen themselves represented in the language or Mm -hmm. have felt uncomfortable being referred to as la or el. And I know for me, I kind of waited a little bit and wasn't really sure how to identify in Spanish as a non-binary person because in English, it's so easy, right? It's a them. In Spanish, I was like, I don't know what I am. I'm not ella, I'm not el. Uh, uh. And I finally found ella, E-L-L-E. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I was like, that's it. That's what I was waiting for. So, you know, 
thinking about how you also welcome people. You know, instead right. you would normally say bienvenidos and you can say bienvenides. Referring to your group of friends, right, has always been amigos, even if you have people who identify as female, always defaults to the to the male gender. Yeah. And you can include everybody by saying amigues. So nice. it's been it's been really fun. And when friends are catching themselves going back to the gendered female terms are like, ah, I'm sorry. I'm like, totally okay. <laughs> yeah. Language is evolving. That's a great thing about language. Right. But it's also knowing that like I'm not gonna take I'm not gonna take that personal if it's a slip. Cause also I mean like I definitely have been like, girl, have you seen blah, blah, blah? And I've said that to like my husband. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, it's just, it's a really fun time right now to see how language is evolving and how that translates into just, like I said, the way in which we are adapting to just everything at this moment in time. Yeah, it reminds me, um, it's actually the, the last thing, leaving Texas and even in Spain, I mean, we say y'all, I say y'all all the time. And there was no, I'm like, how um, amigos y amigas because i didn't i wasn't necessarily comfortable calling a mixed group of mm -hmm. people amigos because mm -hmm. i wasn't used to the gendered language mm -hmm. um so that was that was funny yeah yeah i go for uh gente um i just say like hey oh, gente. Nice. yeah like if, I like I, if it's people i know <laughs> yeah. well anyway back to her bio <laughs> <laughs> yeah so back to the bio a bit so your professional experience um, is as a bilingual science educator and ocean science communicator and so with that claudia centers their work on the intersection of environmentalism and culture and is currently the sustainability and operations manager conservation and science here at monterey bay aquarium uh, so claudia thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us um, we're both really excited and appreciative of the time we did see that your love for oceans and environmentalism came from your dad mm -hmm. and so we were curious if we could hear that story oh yes my dad yeah <laughs> my you know it's really it's really interesting because for a very long time i thought that my passion for environmentalism really came from my teacher my high school teacher, Miss Stevens, she was just the best teacher that I had ever had. And she was my chemistry teacher. She decided she was gonna start an AP environmental science class in high school. And she said, I think you would really like this class, but you have to come to school in the summer. And I was like, school in the summer? Yeah, totally, I'm down. <laughs> and it was just a really cool opportunity to better understand how green my community was. So. Growing up in Southgate, California, in Southern California, I never really felt like I was surrounded by nature. And it wasn't until Miss Stevens' class where I realized, well, nature is basically all around us. And learning how to identify trees, learning how, I, how to identify plants, that was really amazing. And I think that's what spurred my love for ecology. But before all of that, my dad was just somebody who always loved nature but I was still under the idea that nature had to be going to a forest or going to the mountains or going somewhere where you aren't surrounded by man-made objects. Mm -hmm. And so I think back to the things that my dad would do as this nature lover and he would grow plants and he loved his plant. I mean, he still has his plants, but he loved his plants when I was growing up in our childhood home. And 
Um, he would grow fruit trees and herbs, and I would see him take cuttings from yards, which I don't <laughs> think he should be doing now, but um, he used to do that and like propagate stuff. And I didn't care about plants at that time because I didn't understand them. Yeah. And I didn't really know a whole lot of what goes into caring for plants. And I was like, that's too complicated. I'm good. I'm going to go read my books. <laughs> yeah, it was just really cool. And I remember one time he was out of town and he's like, okay, you're in charge of the plants. So here's what you need to do. And he had this like long list of everything that I needed to water and how much water. And I was like, ugh, this is so hard. <laughs> and so just that care for something that's alive is definitely something that he instilled in me. And even the way in which we had our pet, you know, I just kind of had grown up loving animals and I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. But there was the reality of like, wow, that's that's kind of scary if I have to be the person who has to take care of somebody's pet. And like, what if things go wrong? I'm like, mm. so anxiety since like a very young age. But when my dad, when I would see the way that he took care of our dog or even like our goldfish, it was always with this really gentle touch and this, I don't know, this level of care that I admired so much and I wanted to emulate. And I don't think I realized that until later in life. And that's who I wanted to be too. So I think yeah. it was definitely something, it's not, it's definitely something that's ingrained into my DNA because of my dad, but the appreciation didn't come till much later. Yeah, that's a fun story. And I have a lot of similarities. And one of the other reasons why I resisted caring for plants was because he would always serve them on our dinner table. His dad. And my dad, you know, I just didn't like the broccoli and the, <laughs> the different vegetables he was making me eat. We made broccoli cheddar soup one time and all these bugs floated to the top. And we were just like, no way. And he was like, it's just protein, guys. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but we wouldn't do it. So he ate the whole pot of oh, broccoli man. cheddar soup himself over like four days. He's like, I grew this and made this <laughs> eating yeah. this. I love it. Um, so what are you excited about most right now in your work? <laughs> oh, in my work. Oh, yeah. Um, what I'm most excited about right now is we are in the – I'm in the time of year when um, I'm doing our greenhouse gas inventory. So getting a lot of data from folks around the aquarium and um, looking at our consumption data when it comes to electricity and water consumption and things like that. So that's really exciting because I'm able to look back and see how we did compared to the previous year, which, you know, was a outlier. It's going to be an outlier, but having data to make decisions that are based off of, you know, trends and here's where we think here's where I think we should be going and making recommendations that are that are based in um, in data and best practices is really exciting to me because it's not just shooting or aiming for a target and yeah. thinking that it's just going to work. Like somehow we'll make it work. But if the data doesn't show that we can make it work, mm -hmm. then you're not really flexible and adaptable and looking at, well, here's where we can make some changes. Here's where we can make some efficiencies and improvements. So that's that's really exciting to me. And then the part that I really enjoy as well is looking at just our overall consumption um, and our emissions factor. And we work closely with a company to offset our emissions. So that's how we're able to achieve net um, or carbon neutral certification. But investing in projects is probably my favorite part of all <laughs> of it because there are some really great projects out there. And one that I that I really like is this mangrove project. So it's a million mangrove project and they're trying to plant 
a million mangroves in Mexico and um, mangroves are just an amazing ecosystem. So they are a nursery for fish and they sequester carbon and they're just really cool looking, you know, trees. So that's, that's something that I really enjoy doing as well. Do you know where they're at right now in trying to plant a million? Are they... No, I don't know off the top of my head. I don't, but it's it's really cool because the project, there's also another project in Africa. Mm-hmm. So they're, they have a few of them around the globe, but the, the one in Mexico is the one that we've supported for a couple of years now. Very so, cool. Yeah, really how, cool. How long have y'all been carbon neutral certified? Since 2017. Wow. Yeah, so okay. since 2017, we took our commitment to sustainability a step further and actually articulated a goal at the aquarium, which is to model best practices for environmental sustainability. And the outcomes of that goal are to achieve net zero carbon emissions. And one of the ways we do that is through our offsets. But as an aquarium, net is is really what we can achieve because we have animals in our care. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really difficult to achieve total you know, zero carbon, but we also have a mix of renewable energy in the power that we source or the electricity that we source. Just water is really heavy. So moving water from one <laughs> side of the building to the other takes a lot of energy. So, yeah. definitely, you know, it, it would be different if it was, um, we are just a zero electricity aquarium and you can, <laughs> we're just there to interpret what's in the tide pools, but that's, that's not the case. So, yeah. Um, and then the other outcomes we have are to achieve net zero waste, which is a challenge as well yeah. um, due to, you know, the state of recycling mm-hmm. in the United States. And then also achieving sustainable sort of or sourcing sustainable seafood and produce for human and animal consumption. Yeah. Note for the listeners, this is a mostly green tour recording. And so we have lots of fun background noise and we are in the courtyard of the Monterey Bay Aquarium offices <laughs> <laughs> um, for COVID reasons. So we've got uh, a few birds and yeah. some goals. Uh, <laughs> they also have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're trying to get in on the podcast. <laughs> so two of the broad topics that we're looking forward to digging into with mm-hmm. you are sustainable fishing and then the ocean plastic crisis. Mm-hmm. So we know seafood is responsible for some really big numbers annually. It feeds 3 billion people and about 170 million tons are harvested. So a question for you is, you know, the, what the current state and direction of ocean fish stocks are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I would say as somebody who is not a seafood consumer, I don't eat seafood, um, but I'm all for sea vegetables. And as somebody who works closely with our Seafood Watch program, it really depends on what you're what you're asking, like which stock in particular. So right. um, if you're looking at aquaculture, for example, a lot of those bivalves, they're doing really well and they're doing great things. They help filter the water out. Um, so they're these little champions that I don't think get enough credit for all of the amount of work that they do. And by aquaculture, that's the fish farming. So in terms of aquaculture, what I'm referring to is more of the abalone and the mussels and clams and things that are being, yeah, farmed, but are mostly the bivalves. And I would say there's also a lot to to be said in terms of seafood that is being farmed. So fish farms. Seafood Watch is doing a lot to ensure that the farming of fish is being done in the most sustainable way possible. And, you know, for which seafood. Is that even? Yeah, I know. I was going to say, <laughs> which, you know, depends on who you ask what sustainability <laughs> is. But, you know, the traditional definition of sustainability, which y'all probably know about, is, you know, focusing on people and planet. And then there's that other P that makes me cringe, which is profit. <laughs> I think is. I would say that 
Seafood Watch is focused way more on just planet and people. In the work that they do to rate DOC assessments and to give recommendations, they're working really closely with governments. They're working with the powers that can enact that change, which I think is really different compared to, you know, maybe some entities that are looking at really pushing the the consumer, just the consumer side of things. Like if you, you know, you have to, you have to choose this option and, and that's good. You know, it's good to give consumers that information, that choice, but there's a theory of change that, you know, mm-hmm. once you find out about the issue, then you're going to want to do something about it. Right. And so who's going to be there to help you. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that we as individuals don't have power, but you have to create some some real momentum in some cases to make it sustainable. That's yeah. A pun there um, <laughs> on a sustainability podcast. But yeah, so working with governments, working with these um, large seafood producers to ensure that they are moving towards not having antibiotics in their aquaculture or ensuring that the stock assessments are being evaluated on a regular basis and also ensuring that people know a little bit more about those maybe not so enticing seafood options because people love shrimp, (laughs) tuna, salmon, right? Like those are the go-tos, but especially in an area like ours where there's a pretty active seafood community. And if you can purchase right off the dock, like that's incredible. Mm -hmm. Like you can support your local economy. You can also see the traceability in in real time. Like I saw the boat dock right (laughs) in front of me and I purchased the seafood from the fisher person. You know, like that's, that's incredible. And it's powerful. It's powerful. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like, the farm to table movement that was so big, right? A few years ago, which is still big, but it was getting a lot of of attention and you just put it in the water. It's the same thing, like do that. And I think that's where Seafood Watch is really trying to go to, yeah. to ensure that people have that access and the traceability information and those resources to make choices that are going to be best for the planet. Because I mean, let's be real, those of us in these more Western countries we don't need seafood to right. get all of the quote unquote benefits and yeah. nutrients. Like you were just talking about having some of your beet powder for breakfast. Like you're getting nutrition that way, but it's really in countries where there isn't that opportunity that we be, we should be ensuring that that food is available for people who depend on it. We don't depend on it. We are We have the luxury of making the choice to either eat it or not to eat it. And some people don't have that choice. Yeah. It's a fascinating issue. And Seafood Watch was one of the first apps on my phone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, the the app taught me what the difference between line con and trolling. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to make choices. And it, eventually, I mean, there's a lot of documentaries out there about mm-hmm. the ocean. And very few of them paint a very bright picture mm-hmm. about what's going on. And really, these multinational corporations are, you know, robbing these village communities on the water of their ability to sustain themselves. You know, the varying levels of alarmism in these documentaries. Mm-hmm. Is there, like, what's your favorite documentary about the ocean? I know Monterey Bay Aquarium was involved in one, in yeah. more than one. And then are, are there any that you think maybe go too far or highlight the wrong issues because my um, 
favorite ones, I forget the name of it. We'll have to look it up. I think it was called South Pacific or South Pacific Seas or something. Mm -hmm. But at the end, one of the really cool things it did was highlight how resilient these underwater ecosystems are mm -hmm. and that as soon as people moved out of them, it, they just like, mm -hmm. exploded with life. And I think that was South Pacific. So Ooh, I'm going to have to look that one up. That one sounds like a good one. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I love documentaries and ocean documentaries. Yeah. You you've had me hooked there just by saying, like, there's this new documentary. Yes. <laughs> about the ocean. OK. I would say for me, the one there have been several that have had a, a big impact on me. And I've been a vegetarian and vegan for a very long time, for over half of my life. And so a lot of the information isn't new to me. Right. right? So when I see things like like chasing coral. I think for the second half of that documentary, I just cried the entire time because I was like, this is climate change and I'm never going to see corals. And, and I told my husband, I'm like, I need you to promise that you're going to stop eating beef, please. <laughs> um, I need, I need, like, we really, you need to do, you in particular need to do more to reduce your CO2 emission. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. Um, so there are some that have really impacted me because I think of what, what can be lost. And then there are some where I think it's, just really interesting the way in which questions are being presented or information is being presented. And with those kinds of documentaries that pack a lot of information in, I'm like, whoa, you know what would have been great if this was like a series? Yeah. Because I need, and I think people in general need more time to digest the information and to also not feel helpless and hopeless. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the eco fatigue. And it's so dangerous to just be on that type of road where it's it doesn't really matter what I'm going to do everything's going to fall apart anyway or like yeah. there's no real solution I'm like eek no that's not true there are solutions and it's it's when we see these great examples of either people coming together or governments standing for change or businesses making commitments to do better where I find hope Mm -hmm. still as a viable option and then when I see especially like younger generations speaking up for what they want their adult life to look like and generations after them to look like that's what I'm like okay I still feel hopeful I still feel hopeful but yeah Chasing Coral was one that really hit me in the feels The Cove was another one oof yeah that was one that I was like oh gosh and, and I think it's also part of that like shock factor when you see it right like you can hear all the things but when you see it it, it definitely makes you take a different perspective and the one that I really, I thought was done pretty well was, um, I think it was called The Plastic plastic Ocean. Mm -hmm. um, that one was was pretty good. I, could, I had to make her watch it without me because that was the one where it was hitting me. <laughs> it was and within a first, oh. I just like, I, you know, it makes me yeah. change my whole life. And I'm like, like mm -hmm. I'm going to go hop on a boat and try to fix this. I was like, Mason, come back. You <laughs> have to watch this, this one moment though. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just heart wrenching. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it's also part of that whole, like, how do you identify as, right? Because if I'm somebody who I don't eat seafood, then a documentary that's focused on seafood and fishing, like it, doesn't impact me the same way right. as something that is really centered on your consumer choices and how to basically advocate for less plastic in the supply chain. And so that's where I felt like really motivated. I'm mm -hmm. like, yes, I can do something. Like I feel like there is um, control within me to change the system. But um, yeah, I mean, I think 
overall, just having documentaries like that allow people to ask questions and to want to know more. And I, and I think it's really up to the person watching the documentary to also be open to receiving additional information, right? So if you're seeing something in the documentary and you don't see any you know, research being cited, maybe look into that mm -hmm. because there could be a lot of just things being left out that could be detrimental to how you approach the situation. Because if you were, for example, to go and talk to your city council about getting a plastics ordinance passed and, you know, like, let's get plastics off of, out of to-go wear or whatever. And you don't have like the data or the, the research to say like, here's the actual impact, then I mean, thank you, you know, for sharing your thoughts during the two minute presentation right. that's open for um, public comment, but, but you really need to do your research and you need to have that information available. And, you know, science is ever evolving and there's new research coming out every, almost every few months. So keeping up with that, if that's something that you're super passionate about, I think is really important so that you know what the current status of things are and you can really speak based off of, you know, the yeah. science and research. Mm -hmm. And it can be hard because there's a lot of research out there funded by all kinds of different people. And that's one of the things we hope to bring um, with Mostly Green. I have an engineering background. Mm -hmm. And so just have a long history of digging into scientific papers. And, you know, one of them that I found interesting recently, I saw this article that all of a sudden we realized there's 10x more biomass in the ocean than we thought. And it was based on this 2014 where I think it was mostly sonar, but they did other kind of deep ocean measurement. And they noticed below 100 meters, between 100 meters and 1,000 meters, there was just a lot more down there than we previously thought. And people were hailing it. And I very much want to be on the positive side mm -hmm. of the environment. And let's focus on people like Monterey Bay Aquarium who are out there doing the work and doing good things. And so I always hate to be, to voice skepticism about it, mm -hmm. but it was like the the biomass that's down there is not the same as the biomass from zero to 100 meters. Mm -hmm. And so we are, fish stocks are down dramatically across the world of the fish that, you know, are part of the, the higher ecosystem. So I was curious if you had seen that mm -hmm. study, were familiar with it and what your thoughts were on it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I mean, it sounds really interesting and it just makes me kind of want to know more. Yeah. Like, what exactly did they find? And is it, what species are they finding? Is it, is it fish? Is it, um, are they invertebrates? Like yeah. what could, and also what could be contributing to that? And when did those trends start to happen? And what is the, what is also the um, the changes in the environment that happen in that area? Or was it like the whole ocean or like a particular place in the ocean? So they actually went you know. around the globe. And so there were like, they spent a week in the Indian Ocean, mm -hmm. a couple of weeks in the Pacific. So they took a boat and basically they sailed around the world taking mm -hmm. these measurements the whole time as they were going. And, but all it showed was mass. Mm. And so there's, it's like, you don't actually know that, that's fish. It might be plastic down there. But, you know, it made me want to yeah. learn more. And so I tried to read the paper mm -hmm. and was like, they're just, it almost felt like clickbait. <gasps> Oof, yes. <laughs> Studies like that. Oof, yes, Mason, totally. Studies like that are definitely like really dangerous because you have these questions and then you want to know, well, what exactly did you find? And so, yeah, like I said, like, so were there particular species that were there? Were they invertebrates? Were they fish? Was it plastic? And I would just... I would say like, if you're finding a higher concentration of 
biomass deeper, then could it be because the more surface water is warmer? And so you're, you know, those hopefully species and not plastic are trying to go to cooler waters where there's more nutrient rich um, right. waters and, and maybe even an opportunity for better survival. So, yeah. you know, Running like, away oh, from questions, the questions. Trolls. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just would have so many more questions. And that's when I think it's really interesting to set alerts for certain studies or certain, um, you know, authors of papers to find out if they've continued that work. Because if they did something and they found some really interesting results of their research, then they're going to want to publish that. Yeah. But then the question is, so will you continue that research? Yeah. And will you continue to inform the scientific community and even just, you know, the community in general about what you're finding? Because otherwise it's really easy to just go on your day and like, I don't have to think about this, which is true. You don't have to. <laughs> but if you are somebody who really wants to know more, it'd be great to know where you can get that information, right? Yeah. And sometimes going to the source or advocating for more science in the news is mm -hmm. is a good way to go about that. It's a great tip to set an alert and see what they continue yeah. to do. Mm -hmm. One of the things I remember I did when I saw the study was Googled the authors of the study and what else they were publishing mm -hmm. to try to understand who they are working with and what they're interested in and whether this was some weird one-off study or is the, the source of their, you know, career work, mm -hmm. which then makes it more um, credible to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I see that. So we'd also love to talk about some initiatives and projects that Monterey Bay, Bay Aquarium has put on. Um, and I know that you've helped teach, develop, and lead a lot of these events. Um, so one that we found particularly interesting was the Ocean Plastic Solution Summit. Mm. Um, so we wanted to hear more about that and some of the motivation behind creating the summit. Yeah. So um, the Ocean Plastic Pollution Summit is a program that is spearheaded by the education division. So those are the folks who do all that great work of teaching kiddos and mm. um, teachers and whatnot. And the summit started a few years back, I think, what ended up happening was there was a lot of that buzz around plastics and plastics being everywhere. So I think this was right before the the real big tidal wave of plastic that you started to to hear about in the ocean. And teachers were also bringing up these questions to the education staff and asking like, well, you know, I, I'm noticing a lot of plastics and on the on the school playground and things like that. Like, what can we do? And so at that time, um, the education division already had a not a project, but a program for teachers about project-based learning. And the philosophy with that is, well, if you want to conduct a project, conduct it in a place that is accessible to you. So instead of, oh, well, the tigers in Asia are in decline, we should do a project on that. Well, are your students going to go to Asia <laughs> and really do something there? And hang out with tigers? Yeah. <laughs> and advocate for the reduction. Um, and, and I think it also... Make it closer to home. Make it closer to home. You get that investment. And then you can also come up with more community-based solutions. And so the project-based project -based science program kind of helped in the evolution of the Ocean Plastic Pollution Summit. And so the summit alternates every other year and it's for teachers who are in middle school and in high school and they learn about plastics and the issue around plastics in the ocean and 
not just the ocean, but in their community as well. They hear from experts, um, researchers, people who are doing a lot of work to combat um, the plastic pollution problem. And then they kind of take all of that information and bring it back to their school and their community and their students. And they kind of teach their students about the issue. And then the students are the ones who say, can we create a project about this? So it's really driven by the students, which I think is super cool. And OPPS, if you're if you're cool, I want to use the acronym. Um, OPPS is open to all teachers. So there have been teachers from as far down as San Diego to Reno, Nevada. They can find out more just on the Monterey Bay Aquarium. They website. can, yeah. If you go to you know the information for educators, you can get the information there. And and what's great about those programs is that they're all complimentary, so you don't have to pay to participate in those programs. And just like with our field trip programs, you know, which are not pause but are happening virtually that's all free so we're not ocean gatekeepers at mm-hmm. the aquarium mm-hmm. um which can be tricky you know as a nonprofit, but yeah. um but it is really important to ensure that everybody has access to that information since our mission is to inspire conservation of the ocean and you know inspiring that should not come with any barriers or any access issues. Yeah. When I read about that summit, I was like, I want to send this link to all the schools in our community. Mm -hmm. And we're in Austin, Texas. And so, you know, we're landlocked, but we have water around us and it's a aware community. Absolutely. I didn't want to go too far and start sending it out to every you know school around <laughs> us, but it's a really cool program. Send it, send it. Yeah. And I mean, there's lots of really great things that can happen in that area, you know, just because there isn't the direct ocean, like right there, just mm-hmm. a few miles away, you still have bodies of water and all of that gets impacted as well. And, right. and just even in the community, right? Like having all of that plastic in the community and wanting to know, well, who's picking it up and where did it come from? And what are the sources of that? And just knowing more kind of like when we were talking about with sustainable seafood, just knowing more, um, I think gives you the opportunity to find a solution to the problem. We also, it seems that Monterey Bay Aquarium was one of the instigators for the plastic straw campaign. Mm. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about why y'all chose straws. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the outcome was, I don't know if y'all have been able to quantify the reduction in plastic straws, but Mm -hmm. everywhere, you know, we go, we now make sure to even just look at whether or not it is. And You know, some people say that straw is a very small piece of the problem, Mm -hmm. but the awareness that it brings about, Mm -hmm. uh, to me, I feel like was the real goal of the campaign. Yeah. Um, So the straws on request bill um, that got passed a few years ago and the aquarium definitely was in support of the bill. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that makes me really proud of that bill is that it wasn't just a blanket, straws are bad, straws are evil, let's get rid of them, but more of a, here's what we know is happening with straws. They can't be recycled. A lot of them end up in the trash. So that's, you know, impacting our landfills. And when you see them in the community, when you, right, when you see them kind of littered about, it's really easy for them to get littered about because they're so light, mm-hmm. right? They're this very light plastic. And so... What can we do to ensure that that particular type of plastic doesn't find its way into the environment, and especially the ocean environment? And I think this was right around the time where that like viral video came the out with the poor <laughs> turtle and, and things like that. And I think that was very impactful for people. But the reality is with plastics that are already very fragile like that or very light is that just like every plastic, 
they don't break down, right? So they're not gonna break down the same way that a paper towel is gonna break down into these small pieces that'll eventually kind of, they won't add any nutrition to the, to the soil, but they'll break down entirely. Mm. And plastics don't do that. Plastics um, photodegrade. So because of UVA, UVB light, they will just get drier and more brittle and they'll become smaller and smaller pieces. And that's how you get microplastics. So the fact that this very pervasive problem of straws were making its way into the ocean, creating microplastics and impacting the food web. And in some cases, you know, the way in which people recreate, like you're not going to want to go to the lake or the beach if you have like straws around you. But the part that I thought was really great in the approach, it was ensuring that we weren't taking anything away from anybody who needs straws. So people in the disability community depend on straws. Mm -hmm. There are people who can't use a reusable straw or a glass straw or a stainless steel straw. Like it's very unhealthy for them. It's unsafe for them. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the straws on request bill was so important was because it wasn't just, well, here's what we can do for the environment, but here's what we can do for the environment and for people. And we're not going to take anything away, but we're going to ensure that if you are able to drink without a straw or bring your own straw in some cases, which I kind of like, <laughs> um, then we're leaving straws just for people who need it. And that kind of goes back to also with the seafood, right? Like yeah. if you don't need to eat it or you can reduce your consumption of seafood or you can eat, you know, what's local and leave what's necessary for people who depend on that as a main source of protein, then let's do that. So yeah, yeah that was, I think, one of the really great achievements about the straws on request bill. By the time it made it to Texas, the signs in restaurants just said, save a turtle, don't use a straw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was like, well, it's still, it was effective. Yeah. And there's a lot less plastic straws in even yeah. Texas, which That's is right. not, you know, not very close ideologically to, to California <laughs> in, a lot, of, in yeah. a lot of areas. Austin, very much so. A lot of people from California are coming to Austin. But that's really cool. The, and so talking about microplastics, mm -hmm. I saw recently that they had found microplastics in the blood of an in utero child. And we don't, Oof. we, as far as I know, we really just don't know yet the mm -hmm. impact this is going to have yeah. on our health. We're seeing what it's doing to the environment. Mm -hmm. Can you explain on that some and, and what you know about microplastics and if Monterey Bay Aquarium is doing any campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I haven't heard of that study, but that sounds really, gosh, just heartbreaking, right? To, I mean, ultimately plastics, you know, single use disposable plastics are an issue. And if you've seen, you know, other documentaries or if you've done research about the impacts of plastics leaching into, you know, your system and things like that, that's, that's a whole nother ballgame. But plastics, in general are just really tricky because you find plastic everywhere. It's it's in a lot of our products, it's in our packaging. And so it's integral um, to our way of life. Yeah, because it's been built that way, right? Especially the convenience factor of things, right? If I want to go buy something because I'm not in the turn of the 20th century in the 1900s where I didn't have refrigeration. And so I would go to the store and get what I needed just for that day. We don't live in that kind of world anymore. And so plastics have allowed us to be more convenient. And I think plastics have allowed for a lot of other 
things that have just impacted the environment, right? So ultimately, I think that it's what you do with the plastic at the end of its life, right? So plastic doesn't it's weird to say like the life cycle of plastic because it's not <laughs> alive, but it affects living things. And so do you recycle it? Can it be recycled in your area? Do you throw it in the trash because you don't have the infrastructure in your community to recycle it? Those are just like some questions that I think come up for me because my work that's centered on zero waste at the aquarium or net zero waste is really tricky. Like I wish I could say, we don't have any plastic in our operations, but that's not true. We have to use it for our animal feed. So there is plastic coming into, into the aquarium, but how can we work with those distributors and say, do you have an alternative? Can you, like, will you have a take back program and the styrofoam that the fish is being caught in, can we give it back to you? In a lot of cases, you can ask those questions and find a solution. So in our restaurant, for example, we reached out to all of our vendors that, you know, we get our produce from and said, if we give you a container, can you just put our produce in that container and we'll reuse it? And will that work? And they're like, totally. So I think it's in a lot of the relationship building that you make with people and with companies onto finding solutions that are better. But in terms of you know, health impacts and the impacts that it's having in the environment. There's still a lot of research that hasn't been done because plastics are still relatively new mm -hmm. and the end result of plastics is still very unknown. And people still don't know like the actual lasting impacts of plastic in terms of how it breaks down and how long they exist in the environment. So a lot of those numbers that we see or those years that we see like, plastic bags, like 500 years to break down or whatever. I don't know anybody who's been around for 500 years <laughs> and plastics haven't been around for 500 years. So that's right. all a guess, right? So a lot of this is our best guess, right? And so the impact of that in the environment and on people is still being found out. And so I think that's where studies like that or research like that, where you hear it really impacting human health is going to sound shocking and it's gonna be pretty devastating and surprising because it's all new yeah. and so we don't we don't even know the impacts of plastics are so yeah yeah that's a really actually i appreciate your perspective on all of this and your you know kind of maintained curiosity around it and not contributing to the alarmist views out there because it is you know things like that seem scary but you're right we don't I mean, we do know some plastics interact with hormones mm -hmm. in a way that is very damaging to mm -hmm. the body. But, you know, some of the, these plastics are relatively inert um, in terms of how they uh, interact with biological systems. And so then it really is just like the buildup of them. And, mm -hmm. and we don't know. They can do. I mean, we come from the food industry and you have like it's called accelerated environmental tests where you know the as if you know the chemical chemical and environmental processes by which something breaks down, you can do certain things to accelerate that and then be able to do, make an educated guess that it's going to last 500 years mm -hmm. um, because you expose it to much more intense environment than what is normal. And then you extrapolate kind of mm -hmm. out that information. Well, you know what I think is interesting about that too is from the world you come from, right? With, with food. Yeah, you want to have the packaging available to have your product the freshest as possible. But if we know that plastic can last a very long time, like 
your products are going to last that long, like a hundred years, right? And so just going back to the question that you had asked where, you know, like, is there is there anything that we're campaigning for? Like right now in the state of California, we're campaigning for a set of bills that would put more in the consumer's hands. And so when you, for example, get a to-go order, you wouldn't just automatically be given a bunch of condiment packets. Mm -hmm. um, you would actually have to ask for them and you wouldn't just be automatically given a lot of plastic cutlery, like you would have to ask for it. And so it would change the way in which businesses operate. But I think the fact that we had a plastic bag ban in California years back just proves that it takes time. So if yeah. those bills were to be adopted and they were to get passed, it's going to take time. There will be some pain points for people, but I think it's just the way that we have to be more responsible as consumers and to be given a choice as consumers if we know the impacts of certain products or in this case, plastic and how they're impacting our environment, what we see in our community. When you go and like, just walk around, do you see a lot of plastics on the street? So if you can help alleviate that and you can recognize within yourself, like, yeah, that's a problem. Like, I kind of don't want that in my community anymore mm -hmm. or how it's impacting other communities who might be living near incinerators and those health impacts there. Like it's not really equitable. Like plastics just aren't, equitable so yeah that's that's another p part of it too right it's like you just have an opportunity to s demand that change if you know more about what you can ask for yeah and i always like to encourage advocacy and even if the restaurant doesn't give you the choice i like i always ask mm -hmm. you know, can you mm -hmm. do you have this yeah. and then they ask their manager and then they come back and be like no we don't have you know, non-plastic straws, paper mm -hmm. straws or whatever. But then more people who ask that question, Absolutely. Then, you know, because a lot of the, especially when it comes to um, single-use plastic, there are some options that are becoming very economically viable for mm -hmm. restaurants and such to use as an alternative with the different plant fibers and how mm -hmm. good they're getting at those. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it's a wonderful time to, as a consumer, to be out there demanding these things because mm -hmm. it, it is. It might be 0.4 pennies more expensive for the restaurant to give you plant fiber fork instead of a single-use plastic mm -hmm. fork. And and that's better. It's still, you know, not perfect because yeah. some of those are processed in a way that then they, you know, it still takes them 50 years instead of 500 mm -hmm. years to break down, but it's better. Yeah. And, you know, Baby Steps is kind of the, is the name of the game. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, I think just, again, as the consumer, if I'm going to go somewhere and... I'm going to get like last week, for example, met up with some friends and went to this place I'd never been to. And I saw that they make like fresh fruit smoothies and like acai bowls. I'm like, I'm going to bring my bowl just in case. And I was like, oh, senora, puedo ponerlo aquí. And she's like, oh, I see. And I was like, great. Yes. <laughs> Fill up my bowl. That's wonderful. And I had my, um, my spoon with me. Right. And so like easy. I'm going to bring it just in case. And I'm going to ask, right. It doesn't hurt to ask. The worst they can say is no. But if they did offer a compostable option, then I would want to know. And luckily I live here, so I know, but I would want to know, can you actually compost this in your area? Mm -hmm. Because some types of quote unquote bioplastics only break down in certain conditions. And so do they have an anaerobic digester where those you know, bioplastics will break down or is it essentially like a 
scaled up version of your home compost system where it might not break down mm -hmm. and your napkins and the you know sugar cane bowls will break down but maybe that bioplastic fork or cup won't break down so that's not really getting totally at the solution so what could other solutions be and what are some of the environmental um, restrictions in those communities like if we just had reusable everything that'd be wonderful but in California, which everybody knows, we're in a drought. So we have to be really careful about the water that we're using, right? So is that a viable option? Maybe, maybe not. But if I'm allowed to bring my own reusables, I was gonna use that anyway. Yeah, I have it at home, right. so just let me bring it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, um, we're about at it. We actually, we've got a big series coming up on recycling and we really wanna dig in and especially these articles about you know right now i believe only nine percent mm -hmm. of plastic in america is being recycled so you know what are the the alternatives the options and then how do we as consumers get at that but it, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you love what the aquarium is doing love what you are doing thank you so much for the work that you do is there anything else that you would like our guests uh, anything we didn't cover yeah um just quickly on that nine percent stat so it's nine percent of all plastic that has ever been made has been recycled but the nine percent also surprisingly shows that that's the rate at which current plastic is also being recycled so historically only nine percent currently also nine percent what why wow. right like isn't that interesting and we conducted a waste audit uh, at the beginning of 2020 last year, same number. Wow. Only 9% of the recycling, of our plastic recycling is able to get recycled. That is we recycle like 40 some odd percent of things, but only 9% of what we produce that is plastic was able to get recycled. Yeah. The rest, it goes through the recycling supply chain, but then ends up in a landfill. Is that the implication there? Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, unless it, there's a commodity for it, but... Yeah, really interesting. Wow. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but yeah, like I said, yeah, be really curious and ask questions and try to find more information and look to see who's putting out that information. And I would say like when in doubt, maybe put up, like take a pause and wait and think like, do I really need to do this? Mm -hmm. Is this like, do I need to purchase this thing? Or do I have something that I can use already? Do I need to eat? the shrimp you know can i eat <laughs> something else or is there a plant-based option for me and like you know can i go a little bit more plant-based on some occasions so we have the luxury of choice, choice in our in our country so think about some of the choices that aren't just good for you but um good for your community good for the environment and act on that wonderful mm -hmm. and that's such a perfect segue because we are we are creating mostly green for what we call the eco-curious. We And we love the curiosity. And uh, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks. All right. Well, Claudia is extremely articulate, and I loved the attitude and demeanor. I would think someone in that role, seeing what's happening in the world and being on the front lines, would have had a really hard time staying so positive. Yeah, definitely. Like a beautiful soul, centered and present and full of optimism. Yeah. They weren't gushy or anything like that, but just seemed to be hopeful about the state of things. So that was super inspiring. Yeah. So a couple things to circle back on. Um, the 
Number nine, first of all, 9%. It seems like there were a ton of numbers out there, but 9% does come up a lot. A lot. Like too much almost. <laughs> and we it's found, weird. Yeah, we found that some places said, say 30% for particular things, but they were- This was how much is being recycled, by the way. Right. But they were saying that even their internal audit was 9%, which is crazy. Yeah, there's something, I don't know what it means, but- Nine is supposed to be a really good number in numerology. <laughs> so maybe if we break that number, bad things happen. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> also, the documentary that I couldn't name is called South Pacific. And it was actually a TV series that was filmed in 2009. So I really want to know how it's gone since then. It can be seen on YouTube and Amazon. Yeah, because we tried to find it on Netflix I think like a year ago or so, and I couldn't find it. So yeah, it's YouTube and Amazon. It. YouTube and Amazon. Gotcha. So Jess, what were your big takeaways? I loved learning about the Seafood Watch app for responsible fish eating, though it's no longer an app. It's still there, but you just have to navigate it on your browser. You have to go to your browser on your phone and navigate from there versus actually downloading an app. Um, so that can be a little complicated, yeah, I guess. Y'all can thank Google and Apple not getting <laughs> along for that because everyone who develops apps has to develop two completely different apps, one for Google and one for Apple. And they have to look exactly the same. <laughs> Too much work. Yeah. And so we've used it at a few sushi restaurants here in Austin, and it just made me feel great knowing that I was ordering responsibly. Yep. And surprisingly, the waiters were super knowledgeable too. Though I guess we chose sustainable sushi spots here in Austin, and it wasn't like <laughs> major chains, but I was excited about the fact that the waiter knew how to answer all of the questions that I had. And I was basing it off of the seafood watch list. Yeah, me too. It was impressive. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the biggest unfortunate takeaway is that they said not to eat shrimp and shrimp is what I order at like every single seafood restaurant that I go to. Um, so they're just essentially super dirty and being overfished. So that was super upsetting for me. Yeah, that's <laughs> rough. I've been off shrimp for a while on the, on the shrimp wagon, I guess you'd say. <laughs> Well, I really liked their take on being curious about information, mm -hmm. asking a lot of questions when an article title hits you in the chest. And if you're part of the Mostly Green crew, which you can sign up for on our website, feel free to send us articles you want us to research and get back to you with our thoughts. I also love thinking about the other consequences when we start to regulate or ban things. I'd never considered that some people actually need plastic straws. Mm -hmm. Hearing it, you know, makes it makes perfect sense once you hear it. Right. And I really want to try to expand my perspective when I want to take action on something and make sure I'm thinking about all the consequences. Yeah, definitely. So please leave us comments and feedback. If there was something else we should have asked or if you have other questions about sustainable seafood, just shoot us a note. We want to hear from you and make these more interesting for you guys. So we're available anytime. Thanks for listening.